0: Through the life of David this morning, we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, where we are going to see a series of episodes of Saul trying to kill David and God's deliverance of him. Last week, we began to see King Saul's jealousy and how that jealousy not only was expressed and how he was disturbed by the success that David had, but he also was delighted by David's demise, ultimately seeking his destruction and overtly trying to kill him. This week we're actually going to be looking at six episodes where Saul intentionally tries to kill David. Next week, we've got a speaker by the name of Ken Sandy who's going to be coming here next week, and he's actually going to be continuing, and he'll be preaching next Sunday morning and uh, giving us a special message as a continuation of the seminar next Sunday. The following week what we're going to be doing is that there's a psalm that was written by David that reflected the experiences here in 1st Samuel chapters 18 and 19. So this morning what we are going to see is we're going to get a glimpse of of the curtains opening up a little bit. We're going to get a glimpse of what God is doing when we don't really see him. And then in two weeks we're going to look at the same passage from the psalm that David wrote, examining what the human experience is like in the midst of struggles, in the midst of these challenges but here we see god's protection in the midst of these overt threats let's pray together heavenly father we ask that you to set, ask that you would and that you would indeed send your spirit this morning to open our eyes to your sovereignty to your sustaining power your loving care and the working of your providence at times through extraordinary things and at other times through rather ordinary things Lord, would you bless this time together for the honor of your name, we pray. Amen. There have been some times in my life when I have been keenly aware of the Lord's protection on me and on us and on our family. One season of that was when my wife and I were living in the Philippines. Unfortunately, we really weren't there for that long. We only got to be there for half a year. It was supposed to be longer, but then September 11th happened and messed that whole thing up. But in the short time that we were there, we were involved in four major car accidents and we had six people that we knew that we either, six people that we knew either died or we were watched die in one capacity or another. Not only that, there were just multiple episodes of not getting killed. One of those episodes, we were on the high speed highway, high speed, it was, uh, we were going about 40 miles an hour, we were in a Greyhound bus, we were in bent seats, all the windows, there were no windows in the bus. And the bus just plows into this car in front of us. Kaboom, dead stop. Everybody flips over their seat, um, into the, over, the, over the seat, into the seat in front of them, at which point the bus driver spins the wheel, mashes the pedal, takes off down the road. Don't want to get caught by the cops before they saw exactly what happened. Another incident, we were on, the, on a mountain pass. Another Greyhound bus type vehicle, lost its brakes, ran over a tricycle, which is a motorcycle with a sidecar. Pin two pe- people underneath of it, and most likely what happened is that they bled to death before the ambulance could get there. Another person, we were on a boat. Got off the boat, got around the other side, and there was a child that had fallen off into the water and drowned before anyone realized that the child was in the water. Another family of people that we were working with. Kids were playing in the backyard, swinging kids around. Hot, sweaty hands in the Philippines. One of the kids loses grip, swings over, his head hits a tree and has a brain aneurysm. Another person... Actually, one of my more memorable ones that's indelibly sketched in my mind was towards the end of our time there, and it was the first day of the rainy season, which is a terrifying place to be, because what that means is that all of the oil that has been dripping from cars for the last five months now gets a light rain shower to come through, and it turns the entire road into this massive oil slick with people driving trucks that have our bald tires on them. And so I am sitting in the back of a jeepney, which are these, these bench things. I'm sitting in the back of it. I'm sitting here. The bumper is, is literally right here. And we're jam-packed. I can't go forward. I can't go backwards. We can't move any direction. And I look out into the night. And behind me, the rain is coming down. And there is a Mac cement truck that is out of control. And it is fishtailing back and forth across the road, coming right towards me. The headlights getting bigger and bigger as this thing's coming towards me. And I remember the thought going through my mind was, Lord, if this is it, make it quick. (laughs) And it stopped right here is where it stopped. They said, okay, I guess the Lord's not done with me yet. And so there have been seasons in my life when I've been keenly aware of the Lord's protections and presence. Other times, not so much. I come back to the United States. People aren't dying as regularly as they were overseas. There's more protections, more laws, more safety protections that we have. And then all of a sudden, when a threat comes along, something that seems intimidating, scary, that I'm not sure how it's going to work out, it's very easy to ask the question to feel like, okay, where is God in the midst of this? Where is he right right now? and can feel like I'm all alone in the midst of it. Well, here we are going to be looking at, again, the divine picture of what happens when one of God's servants is under threat. Looking quick, I'm going to, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give a brief summary of these six different episodes where King Saul is trying to kill David, and we're going to look, then look at the lessons and principles that this draws for us. First episode was what we saw last week. Saul's jealousy begins to overtake him. And what happens, it tells us in verse 18 and 11, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along as we reference these things, chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel. We see it in verse 11. It says, And Saul hurled the spear at David, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him, not once, but twice. He didn't kill David that time. So Saul's trying to figure out how on earth can he kill this guy. And he says, you know what? I'm going to figure out a way for the Philistines to kill David instead of me. So he says to David, David, I'll let you marry my daughter if you go kill some Philistines for me. David said, that sounds like a good deal. And so he tells him this. Saul decides not to do what he said and didn't give him his first daughter in marriage, the daughter that was promised to him for killing Goliath. And then he sees, Saul sees that his daughter is in love with David. And he says, this is great. My daughter is in love with David. I'll use this as a trap so that David will get killed by the Philistines. So he sets his daughter up for her beloved to get slaughtered. So Saul says to David, David, uh, it comes to him, David, I want you to become my daughter-in-law. So I want you to become my son-in-law. And the condition here is all that I want you to do is to go get 104, skin, 104 skins of the Philistines. David says, only 100? That's great. I'll go out and get 200. Why does David do that? Well, because he loves this, his, uh, Saul's daughter. He loves her, and he wants to marry her, and he thinks that's fair. Why did Saul want David to do that? Because he wanted David to be killed, and wanted him to be killed at the hand of the Philistines. The next thing that happens is that David then becomes successful in his, uh, in his military battles. And there is a cabinet level meeting of the king's cabinet. And they gather together. And, this king's cab- and Saul says to his cabinet, we need to kill David. We're going to kill him. Just go out and kill him. And Jonathan, Saul's son, David's friend, says, Dad, why are you going to kill David? All he's done has been helpful. He's advanced the kingdom. He's been loyal to you. Don't kill him. And Saul says, you know what? You're right. David will not be killed. And Saul guarantees his safety. So David's brought back into the presence of Saul again. And there, as David's playing his lyre and singing songs again, Saul decides. He gets a, his anger overcomes him. And Saul picks up his spear, and he tries to nail David to the wall another time. However, he only nails the wall this time, like he did before. At this point, David gets up and he flees. He runs back to his house, where his wife, Saul's daughter, Michal, Michelle, Michael, however you want to pronounce it, is at home. He goes home, and what happens there is that Saul sends his henchmen, the secret police, the KGB, take your pick, He sends his henchmen to stand guard of David's house so that when David comes out in the morning, they're going to grab hold of him and kill him. But what happens is that Saul's daughter is aware of this, and she says to David, David, if you don't escape tonight, you're going to get killed. So she lowers him out of the back window of the house, and he makes a mad dash through the night to get to Samuel. Meanwhile, the next morning, David doesn't come out. The messengers go up and knock on the door. Uh, David's wife comes to the door, and when she sees them, she shows up with a towel around her arm, a thermometer in her hand, and a pot of chicken soup bo- boiling on the stove, and she says, sorry, David's not coming out today, he's sick. Those messengers go back and tell Saul, David's not coming out today, David's sick. And this is, this is what Saul says in response to this, verse 15, it's a great line. Then Saul sent the messenger and says, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. If he doesn't come out, go in and not only get him, but carry him in his bed to me, and when he comes to me, I will kill him in his bed. At which point Saul finds out that he has been tricked, that it is just a, a dummy, a stuffed, uh, stuffed animal that's in the bed. He gets mad at his daughter, saying, how could you trick me? She lies again and says, dad, don't you realize what a brute he is? He would have killed me if I didn't do it, knowing that he lies, that she's lying one more time. We now come up to the sixth episode of Saul trying to kill David. This is when the, the, Samuel, David goes up to Samuel, where Samuel is residing. This is verses 18 to 24 of chapter 19. And what happens is that when they get there, it was told to Saul, this is verse, um, verse 19, Behold, David is in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, And Samuel, standing head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Saul, not getting this, when he found out what happened, sends more secret police. And they also prophesy. And Saul finds out about that, and he sends more messengers, secret police. And as they come up there, what happens? They also prophesy. At this point, Saul says, you know what? You can't get any any good help these days. If you want to have something done, you've got to do it yourself. So Saul heads out. He goes up there. And before he gets there, Saul is overcome by the Spirit of God. And he, too, begins prophesying. He takes off his clothes, really his outer tunic. It doesn't mean that he's naked. He takes off his outer tunic. He's probably got his undergarment on. And it says that Saul prophesies day and night. As the Holy Spirit compels Saul into singing God's praises day and night. What a horrible night this was for Saul. He's in utter agony. Saul speaking of heavenly matters while his heart burning with hatred for God and hatred for David. Unwillingly, he is speaking God's praises, compelled to prophesy about David and his success and to give praise to God, both of whom he hates. Having gotten an overview of those six scenarios, here are the principles that we can draw from this. The first one is this, is that the Christian is secure in God's protection. Notice how unaware David is of the danger that surrounds him. Notice how unaware David is of the depths of Saul's hatred. He's a, he doesn't have a clue to how much danger he is in, how close to death he is living moment by moment. Saul, David is playing the liar to calm Saul. Now, you might be wondering, why on earth does David keep showing up for target practice, right? Like, why does he keep coming back there? Well, if you've ever, if you, if you or you've known someone who's grown up in the home of an alcoholic or someone with mental illness, this makes total sense. They say, you know what? Saul, the king's he's having one of his episodes today. Maybe you can play a song and help calm him down. It's not malicious, it's just psychotic. Go ahead, you know, see if you can do something about this. But that wasn't the case. No, Saul was trying to kill David again and again. And David was unaware that, of Saul's intention. Then, when he's told to go get a wife at the price of the, mem- of, uh, the members of 200 100 Philistines, and David comes back with 200, David is unaware that Saul did that so that David would get killed at the hands of the Philistines. Then there's this cabinet-level meeting of Saul's advisors. And David is unaware of the king's intention to call a meeting to kill him. And then when David flees to his house, again, David is unaware that there are messengers and the secret police surrounding his house, and he only finds out because his wife tells him. And then as David flees to Samuel, he is unaware that Saul's hatred for him is so great that Saul does not care if he is going to try to seize him in the presence of the ambassador of God, namely Samuel. He is unaware of the danger that surrounds him. I I think there's evidence here also that not only is unaware of the danger, but also unaware of the extent of God's protection. You see, the text emphasizes David's actions in this passage. And we don't know what David was thinking, but we might have a conversation with David like this. How did the spear not kill you those two times? Well, I evaded Saul twice. Well, how were you not killed by these Philistines when you were trying to get a wife? He's like, I'm a warrior. This is what I do. I kill Philistines. He wants 100, I'll give him 200. How how um, How did the cabinet... Saul's cabinet granted a stay of execution. Well, my friend persuaded Saul to not kill me. How were you not killed by the spear another time? Well, I ducked him again. How How did you escape the secret police surrounding your house? Well, we tricked them and I ran fast through the night. And yet what the text says four different times, it asserts that the Lord was with David. And it seems that David is not only unaware of the extent of the danger that he is in, but unaware of the extent of God's protection upon him. And the hiddenness of God, and the hiddenness of God's protection, continued until it became undeniably clear, as three different brigades of secret police begin prophesying, and Saul is prophesying too. And the only explanation is that David is now secure in God's protection. The only explanation when everyone is prophesying is that the mighty arm of the Lord has protected David and that the Holy Spirit has brought about the forced submission of the will of these men and the will of Saul himself, prophesying day and night, not a fluke passing moment, but the demonstration to make it perfectly clear that this God, who appears hidden, who appears inactive, who appears removed from the course of men, is not at all. But rather, he is the God, who alone is God, who alone secures the protection of his people. Might this example not suggest to us that God's protection is far more unknown to his people than we give him credit for? Might it not suggest that? How many times has God protected you from a car accident, from an illness, from another person that you were unaware, that you saw in retrospect? How many times has God protected you in your car from taking the life of another person in situations that you were unaware that it was happening? I think of a situation of my brother when he was 17 years old. He was driving in his car, he was sitting at a stoplight, there was, he was, there was three lanes of traffic, there was a car on each side of him. He had his friends in the back seat, 17 years old, he's 17. His friends in the back seat start yelling, he doesn't know what they're saying, and he slams on the gas and he jumps the red light. And it was God's protection. Because the reason why he did so, was the re- or the reason why his friends were yelling, was because there were two gangs in a gunfight, broke out right behind them after he slammed his foot on the gas pedal. How unaware we are of God's protection. How unaware we are of God's continued preservation of us. And in the midst of struggles, in the midst of distress, it may feel like you are all alone. In the midst of confusion in the midst of chaos, in the midst of running, dropping out of a window, and running through the night in the midst of distress, it may feel like you alone are running through the night to get to a place of safety. But I would urge you to pause and to look, and to see God's loving care and his preservation. And if I think that if you look, you will see that it is apparent, because there is clear evidence that God has not only not abandoned and not forsaken David, but he has not abandoned and he has not forsaken you. And sometimes, as Ralph Davis writes, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial. Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but rather. That you are still on your feet in the middle of it. That God's protection oftentimes comes not through the removal of danger, but the protection and the care of his people in the face of it. The Christian is secure in God's protection. second principle we see in this passage is this. The Christian's hope is in God, not in a deliverance. Notice how varied the deliverance was that God worked for David. Did David know how he was going to be delivered in any of these circumstances? Not at all. Not at all. Twice, two different episodes, David survived by his ninja skills—his spear-dodging you know, his, his spear skills with a spear landed in the wall and not in his head. Once, it came through Saul's son's dis- diplomacy as David's friend was talking over food. Another time it came through Saul's daughter's deception, which that raises a whole set of questions. It comes through Saul's daughter's deception with a sleight of hand and a suspense-filled night and a shimmy-out-the-window and a run-for-your-life-through-the-night episode. And then it comes through the raw domination of God's Spirit overpowering the will of men. Did, God, did David know how God would deliver him in any of these instances? Not at all. Each one of them was varied. Each one of them was different. And dare to say, they haven't been really repeated again. But the key point is that it was God who delivered. For us, in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of threats, it's easier for us to look at this situation and say, you know what? In the midst of the tension that I'm in, the only solution, the only solution that I can be is this. That this person be removed. That this person get out of my life that my job changed, that something happened. That is the only way that this situation can be resolved. And the faithless can look at that and say, you know what, I can't see a way. And the fear of our heart is this, that if I cannot see a way, then there therefore must be no way for God. And the way that we say that in Christian terms is we say things like this to say, yeah, I know, barring an act of God, this is what's going to happen. Every one of these things was an act of God. And when God acts, there is a temptation within us to explain the ordinary things away. To explain the ordinary workings of God as somehow that they weren't the workings of God. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And when we get our daily bread, we say, well, that's what I get for earning, the, or for earning a living and walk, working hard. No, it is an act of God and God's provision. Sometimes most often God's provision and God's protections comes through ordinary not exciting things. Occasionally like for David there are once in a moment one moment in the history of the world extraordinary acts where God does something amazing. But the point of this is for us to turn our hope and to find our hope in God not in some particular form of deliverance. First one, the Christian is secure in God's protection. Secondly, the Christian's hope is in God, not in a deliverance. Third point, and there's four of these, is that the Christian is immortal until death. The Christian is immortal until death. Acts 13.36 says this. This is in the New Testament. Luke writing reflecting on the life of David. He says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. What Acts writes is this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died. Is that David would not die until God's purpose for his life had been fulfilled. Moreover, David could not die until God's purpose for his life had become complete. Nothing could thwart him. Nothing could stop him. Nothing could kill him. Why? Because God had a purpose and a plan for David, and God was ensuring that that plan and the purpose that God God had for David would be fulfilled. And so David, like a Christian... In our bodies, David is immortal until his purpose is fulfilled. And then once his purpose is fulfilled, guess what? He's dead, right? Now, once your purpose is fulfilled, God will take you home. Praise the Lord. And until God takes you home, guess what? There is a purpose for why God has you here, and you can move forward in confidence that you are immortal until your death. What does that mean practically? It means that you can be confident that God will keep you secure in his care. He will keep you secure in his care and his protection until whatever plan that he has for you comes to pass. You know, And for me, to understand and to experience God's protection, I don't need to have the experiences that David had. I don't actually. I would rather not have the experiences that David had. I would rather not have to escape through the night out of my bedroom window, running to Cornerstone to find the elders to give me protection. Right? I would rather not have that experience. I don't need to have those experiences to know God's protections. But what the only thing that I do need is, I need to know David's God. I don't need David's experiences, but I do need to know David's God. Psalm 34.7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who, fears him, who fear him and delivers them. That God, the angel of the Lord, surrounds, encamps himself around those who fear the Lord and protects them. What that means is that I can and I should rest content in God's protection and in his care. For if David's God is my God, I can rest in his protection, for the Christian is immortal until death. A couple practical applications. Parents, it means for you that you can rest that God is in control of your children and that you are not. You can rest that God is the one who has a plan for you and for your children's life, and there's really nothing you can do to thwart that. Yes, you need to be responsible. That's one of the means that God uses But your hope and confidence for you as a parent in the success and the protection of your children is not in you, but it is in God. And what that means is that God is the one who watches and protects and preserves your children, and God loves your kids far more than you love your kids. And so you can rest secure that God is in the one that is in control, and you're not, and you don't have to be. It also means that you personally can live your life without fear. To live your life confidently and obediently and wisely. What does that mean, wisely? That in the midst of a threat, making a wise decision. But you can live your life confidently and obediently and wisely because God is the one who is securing you and securing the purpose that he has for you. And that fear is no reason to sin. Because the Christian is immortal until death. Fourth principle from this passage. First one, the Christian is secure in God's protection. Secondly, the Christian is, the Christian hopes in God, not in deliverance. Thirdly, the Christian is immortal until death. and fourth. The Christian is secure through God's deliverer. Thus far this morning, I've focused on the principle of how God's protection, as seen in the life of David, extends to his people. And that is all true. But it is not the most important point. And it is not the central message of this passage. Because there is something far more important that is going on here. Because when we read stories about David, such as this one, we need to look at the bigger picture of what is happening, not the life of David, the individual believer. Because the tendency is to read the stories of David and other biblical heroes and to read the stories of these and to say, okay, David is the exemplar Christian. David is the portrait of the Christian life and how God interacts with me. And that's how most people understand and apply these passages, and they do so incorrectly. If you want to find who I'm most like in this passage, it's it's the person of God who is wayward on the sidelines. David is God's anointed one. David is the one that God has provided for himself. David is the one, David is God's, self-provided deliverer for his people, that the people of God were oppressed, they were fearful, they were wayward, they were acting in godless ways, and David was the one, the anointed one, who God provided to restore a right relationship between God and his people, and to restore the purpose that God has for his people in the world. And so it is not simply a matter that God is preserving David But rather, in preserving David, God is preserving the deliverance of his people. And God will protect his deliverer, David at this point, in order to secure the deliverance of his people. And God is making sure that David, the anointed one, the one who is going to bear the promise that God has given, God will make sure that David will fulfill his purpose, that he will deliver God's people. That God will use them to save his people. That David will roll over them. And it is in this protection of God's deliverer that we see the main point. Is that David is simply a glimpse of what God has done through his greater son, through David's greater son, his descendant, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, David's descendant, the bearer of the promise and fulfillment of the promise given that David carries it is in David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in him. It is through him. It is under him. It is, Jesus, it is the deliverance of Jesus Christ for his people that will not fail. And it is his care that is unquestionable. It is his love that is unstoppable. It is his plan that is unthwartable. And it is his protection that is undeniable. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who is my king. And it is he in whose loving care I rest. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think, summarizes this episode in the life of David, fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ very clearly. And I want you to hear the sustaining protection that God provides through his, for his people. And the question is this, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you say that? And if you can't, I invite you to do so. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is my only comfort in life and death? It is that I am not my own, but that I belong both in life and in death to my faithful and precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what this means for us? It means that you can live your life without fear. It means you can live your life trusting in God's protection. It means you can live your life finding your comfort, both in life and in death, finding your security both in life and in death, in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I am unaware of how many times you rescue my life.